This is Words Matter. Welcome to the Words Matter Library. Today we will feature Why Wall Street Matters by William D. Cohen. Bill Cohen, thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. But first, an introduction is in order. Several times an episode, I will say we when talking about Words Matter. There are 15 people who spend all or significant part of their time working on this project or plan to. Katie Barlow is one of those people. Katie has been working with us since launch. She's taken the lead in developing new podcasts, and we have two DC-based projects in pre-production at the moment. By way of background, Katie's a lawyer and the founder and editor of DC Circuit Breaker, which provides news and analysis on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, something that's going to become even more important over the next few weeks, months, and even years. As a journalist, Katie has covered Capitol Hill with WTOP, including Justice Kagan's confirmation hearing, as well as the Supreme Court with NPR's Nina Totenberg. It was always in the plan that as we grew, Katie would be a sometime host and co-host of this podcast. So we're moving that up. Katie, welcome to Words Matter. Hello. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It is great to have you. And with that, our host will introduce today's guest. Katie? Thank you. And thanks, Bill, for being here. We're excited to have you. Bill Cohen is a former senior Wall Street M&A investment banker for 17 years and a New York Times bestselling author of three nonfiction narratives about Wall Street. Bill is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair. He also writes for The Financial Times, The New York Times, Bloomberg Business Week, The Atlantic, The Nation, Fortune, and Politico. Thanks again for being here, Bill. It's great to be here. We didn't miss anything, did we? I don't think so, no. So why does Wall Street matter? Well, th- th- this came about, I mean, I was in the middle of writing my next book, which is going to come out in July, called Four Friends, about four friends of mine from high school and what happened to them in their lives. Uh, and I was in the middle of doing that. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren had just sort of gone off on uh, one of my friends who worked at Lazard, a guy named Antonio Weiss, who was head of investment banking at at Lazard and uh, who I had trained when I was at Lazard. He was a junior banker and he worked under, under me for a few years. Brilliant guy, very successful and decided he wanted to be, uh, I think, something like deputy treasury secretary in the Obama administration. Uh, and Obama had nominated him. That means, uh, as, as you guys know, I mean, that's a full uh, nomination. That means he's been vetted. That means background checks. It's not just like floated out there to see if anybody bites or anything. It means he's been fully vetted. An FBI full field investigation. Whatever, whatever it is, uh, you know, a popular president, Democratic president had nominated this guy to be deputy treasury secretary. And Elizabeth Warren, who was probably then at the peak of her powers on the Senate Banking Committee, would not even meet with Antonio Weiss uh, because he worked on Wall Street. He was a Wall Street guy. That made him bad. That made him evil. That made him, you know, against the American people. You know, it's her whole shtick. And uh, I just couldn't believe that it had come to this, that, that Elizabeth Warren was in Obama's party. You know, Antonio was willing to give up his very lucrative job at Lazard to go work in the government because he believed it was the right thing to do. He had all sorts of skills that he was going to bring to the job. Uh, and all he was asking for was a fair hearing. 
and she wouldn't even meet with him. And so he didn't get a fair hearing. He ended up having to withdraw his no- uh, name from nomination. Eventually, he was appointed a counselor to the Treasury Secretary, which didn't require Senate confirmation. So he got down there anyway and went anyway, uh, and he was able to do that for two years and accomplish a lot of things and gave up his post at Lazard, all these you know wonderful altruistic things that he was doing. And I just got so offended by the fact that just because you happened to work on Wall Street, that made you an evil person and that your your confirmation hearing could be blocked. You couldn't even have a, a meeting to see whether what kind of guy he was. I just was so offended by that and, and, and the way that Wall Street had just become post the financial crisis, post the Dodd-Frank law, post the Volcker rule had just become a convenient punching bag for politicians uh, looking to gain political points uh, uh, you know, with their constituents. And there was just this huge disinformation about what Wall Street really does, what it's really all about, who really works there, what kind of people there. And I thought I should write this book so that people can really understand what's going on. And I, I walked through the history of Wall Street, how it came about, right. and, and I walked through what the kinds of things that Wall Street does that are so important that if we take so for granted that we, without it, we wouldn't be able to have any of the things that we take for granted in this country. Right. I think it's a great book. I think it's very informative. I listened to it on Audible. It was an easy listen. Uh, I found helpful the educational aspect of it. I definitely learned a lot listening to it. One of the points that you make toward the end of the book is that one of the key issues is that there are perverse incentives for the individuals on Wall Street because they take other people's money, make risky decisions with that, and they win either way. They don't get punished for that um, either through the system or through the financing of it. That's why Preet Bharara is so important to the equation because he didn't police that behavior. Right. Those wrong incentives. So we talk about that and we talk about those perverse incentives that exist now. And you say, you know, one role of the Justice Department, as you just did, is, is to deal with that on the back end once those decisions have been made, once the fallout happens. What can we do? What can be done? How can the system change before we get to that point? to reverse those perverse incentives or to change them. You know, that's like uh, uh, pitching a softball to me. I mean, because in the, in the book, uh, of course, I do talk about uh, some ideas about how to uh, change the incentives so people do the right thing and get rewarded to do the right thing as opposed to get rewarded to do the wrong thing so that we have to clean up the mess, which is inevitable. I mean, it's been, you know, now 11 years since the financial crisis. We're going to have another one and it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out that the perverse incentives on Wall Street have once again or, or in other places of finance, you know, where there are plenty of perverse incentives. I mean, and that's why I t- spent some time in the book talking about the, the, the evolution of Wall Street from a series of private partnerships where it was partners real money, real own capital in the firms to public companies where they were using other people's money uh, to pay bonuses. And the whole idea of a linkage between the capital that you have in the firm and, and your ownership of the firm and your responsibility for what the firm does on a day-to-day basis was completely lost. So More skin in the game. More skin in the game, and you know, and it wasn't such a far-fetched idea that I proposed. I mean, because all these firms had been private partnerships where partners did have their own right. capital and and could lose their entire net worth along the way if something would happen. And by the way, that happened all the time. I, I start the Goldman book by saying Wall Street is a very dangerous place. Wall Street has always been a very dangerous place. We just forget that. We got a serious reminder in two thousand eight, and we're going to get another reminder. You know, any day now. Uh, the problem is that you know, for all of Dodd Frank. 
point for all the vocal rule. I mean, I've said on and on and on many times, you could throw the Dodd-Frank law away. You could throw the vocal rule away. If you change the incentive systems on Wall Street and, and how people were held accountable for their behavior, you wouldn't need those laws because people would do the right thing because they would get rewarded to do the right thing or they would get fired for doing the wrong thing. And so – but none of that changed. For all that 22,000 pages of Dodd-Frank law, which nobody has read and has been now being rolled back, uh, there's nothing in there that talks about changing the incentive system and the compensation system on Wall Street. I've had this debate with with, with Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO of Goldman. I said, Lloyd, uh, I'll come down to Goldman. I'll be the CEO for six months. I'll have a term limit. I will implement this compensation system change, and I will leave. And, and I don't mean that, that you'll be the one to clean up the mess, but I will be doing the thing that you don't want to do and that your board doesn't want to do and implement this change and make the American people better off. I've suggested What did he that say? Did he say yes? He laughed. <laughs> he laughed. But at least he talked to me about it, unlike anybody else on Wall Street who wouldn't even pick up the phone to talk to me about it. And I think that's an important point of your book. And Bill, I've been trying to explain, and as you know, I've spent my career trying to operate in that nexus a little bit and explain Wall Street to Washington and Washington to Wall Street. And one of the things I thought was most important about your book was you trace those misaligned incentives, as you said, back to May of 1969 when DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette goes public, becomes the first one. I loved you talking about that. And people often talk about Wall Street being a casino culture. And you say this in the book, too, of about being the house wins. But has having worked there, what I observed was it was a casino culture, all right, but this is how I would lay it out. Somebody says, Bill, here's $10 million of somebody else's money. You get to go into a casino. If you win, you get a portion of that money. If you lose, maybe next year you'll be asked to leave the casino. That's the only downside. And if you're at a firm like a Goldman or the top-tier firm, you can work your way down where you can spend your entire career not being all that successful at investing that but still making huge bonuses because you made a few good up bets. And so how do we, to Katie's question and point, which is, is there a way to dial back that And again, you suggested this. Is it a percentage of skin in the game? I mean, if it's a private equity firm, do they have to have 40 percent of the money in any fund, their own money? Is it the same way with Wall Street banks? I mean, one of the things I loved when you did your critique of why re-implementing Glass-Steagall is foolish, and I was explaining this to my dad who knows a little bit about this and felt like I did, which is, well, we should go back to Glass-Steagall. And I said, well, wait a second. Bill very much describes this as in 1933 – Separating commercial banking from investment banking was like separating the yolk from the egg white. Today, it would be like unscrambling the omelet. Right. And I like that. And you're right. And I, the Volcker rule, I like you, to You could separate uh, the white from the yolk pretty easily, easily right. right? But now you'd have to unscramble the omelet because and, they're so integrated. And uh, and by the way, we wouldn't want that because – I mean this is why you know I get so frustrated with the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world who of course benefited immensely. As I pointed out in Why Wall Street Matters, I think uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren got a $2 million advance or a million and a half dollar advance uh, from her book. Uh, she wouldn't have gotten that if there weren't like, this capitalist system that she derides on a regular basis. You know, the whole point here is that – uh, Wall Street does so many things that are good, that we need, that we take for granted. But, you know, uh, it is 
uh, clearly the dominant force in finance in the world. I mean, you may not like Wall Street, but it is uh, one of the things that America does best. I mean, it's sort of like our tech industry. Nobody's talking about, you know, we are more and more. I mean, some members of the uh, tech industry are, are coming in for a lot of criticism, but nobody, you know, that iPod, the iPad, I mean, whatever whatever it is, the iPhone, I mean, we, we love those things. We take them for granted. They are respected worldwide. Wall Street is respected worldwide. European banks, Asian banks, you know, all the innovation, all the creativity, all the trading, all, all the M&A advice, everything comes from, you know, within a mile radius of where we're sitting now. And so if you want to tear that apart and destroy that, you really have to wonder why you would do that. I mean, this is like, do you want to put Apple out of business? Because that's the same logic. And I think, you know, instead of deriding it and trying to tear it down, let's improve it. Let's change the incentives. Let's take the top thousand people at Goldman Sachs uh, and at, at these firms, the people who make the decisions about how to deploy capital, who gets rewarded, who pays the bonuses, who gets promoted and when, what business lines to be in, all of those things. Let's have those people once again have their full net worth on the line again, just like they used to when they were private partnerships, just like Mr. Sachs did and Mr. Goldman did. I mean, we're not that far removed from And even John Whitehead and John... And even even uh, you know Bob Rubin and and Steve Friedman and, and Hank right. Paulson. I mean Goldman only went, Goldman went public twenty years ago. It wasn't that so Goldman's celebrating one hundred fiftieth anniversary this year. It went public twenty years ago for the first hundred and thirty years of the hundred and fifty years. I don't know what that is. That's like something like ninety percent of its existence was a private partnership where people who were the partners had liability, had a lot of their net worth and at times their full net worth on the line. We need to go back to that again because that will force the people who make these powerful decisions, these powerful people at these firms who are making important decisions to make the prudent decision, not the swing for the fence with other people's money decision when they know there's no accountability because the corporate shell will cover the liabilities and it'll be the creditors and the shareholders who take it on the chin. I mean, there's no other business on the face of the earth where, you know, now it's less, but once upon a time, you know, 50 to 60 to 70 percent of all the revenues went out in the form of bonuses to the people who worked there. I mean, that's insane. Now it's 30 to 40 percent. Okay. But nevertheless, I mean, these are people who aren't taking any risk with their own money, and yet they're getting paid as if they're the owners. Right. Your next book, you mentioned it briefly. You're working on it. Just, you want to give us a little preview? I think oh, it's I'm a, happy to. Yeah. Sure. I mean, what author doesn't want to talk about his, <laughs> his book? Uh, it's called Four Friends. It's about four friends of mine. I went to Andover. It's about four friends of mine from Andover, uh, what happened to them in their lives. We went there at a time uh, where you lost touch with people. If you know, you have to have their pay phone number at their college dorm if you wanted to keep in touch and, you know, guys don't really write guys' letters. Uh, now it's very much easier <laughs> to keep in touch with people. But each one of these four friends of mine unfortunately died young and tragically. So as I saw this sort of pattern developing, uh, including uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., who is a good friend of mine from Andover and whose uh, the 20th anniversary of his death is uh, coming up in July. And I just, you know, how did these guys live their lives after Andover? What did they do after Andover? And what choices did they make that, you know, may or may not have led to what happened to their, their ultimate fate, which was dying young and tragically? You know, after writing about Goldman, after writing about Lazard, after writing about Bear Stearns, after writing about the Duke lacrosse scandal, after writing about why Wall Street matters, I felt, you know, I'm, you know, not a young guy anymore. I felt 
I needed to sort of explore some of these existential issues about life and what we're doing here. And it was a great journalistic challenge because obviously these guys weren't here to talk to. So I had to talk to their families and their friends. And, you know, except for JFK Jr., there was no documentary evidence about these guys. So it was a real reporting challenge. It was also somewhat sentimental and melancholy. But also uh, it, it was a real uh, – it allowed me to write an, an homage of sorts. Not that I shied away from the the brutal facts of their lives, which are in some cases you know, unpleasant. John F. Kennedy Jr. made a lot of mistakes in his life, especially that fateful day you know, in July of 1999. And you know, what had led him to that point? What had led some of my other friends to the point that they ultimately lost their lives in a tragic way? Mm, that sounds like it'll be a good book. It's not about Trump. I don't mention Trump once, so that means it may not make it you know, to, to the bestseller list. But I think it's something we can all relate to. And I think that you know, we all know people who died young and tragically. And that's just something we all can relate to. And going to a place like Andover, which sort of indoctrinates you in how wonderful your life can be and how, how much you can succeed because you've gotten every advantage in the world. And you're like a Delta Force team out there in the world to have, you know, the reality kick in that, you know, things don't always work out like you hope is pretty interesting. Well, we look forward to that. Bill Cohen, you can read him in Vanity Fair. You can listen to him on Audible. You can read him in all of the other publications that we have, uh, that we listed at the top. Thank you so much for being our Thank guest. You. It's great. We really appreciate Enjoyed it. it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.